Oh God, as we come together, as we come before you, we recognize and confess and acknowledge that you are worthy. And Lord, I pray that as we take a few moments to consider the book of Revelation, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it. There are some strange things there. But God, I pray that we wouldn't get lost in the strangeness and the fantastic images, but that we would see what you're doing in the midst of all of that, and in the midst of the story you're telling in the book of Revelation. God, help us, I pray. Speak by your spirit and by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open up to the book of of Revelation, it's the second easiest book in the Bible to get to. Just go to the back and it's the last book. And while you're turning there, I just want to take us back for a moment. If you remember, nearly two years ago, we began considering God's story in Scripture. We sought to consider a bit of the overarching story of what God was doing throughout the Bible. As we looked at each book of the Bible, there are 66 books, and so we've considered each of those. And we've done some other, uh, you know, looked at the overall story of the Bible and looked at the story of the Old Testament, story of the New Testament. So if I'm counting right, this is somewhere around sermon number 70 in this series, the world's longest series ever, and hopefully the last one that'll be this long. But, um, but if you remember way back then, we started with seven seas of creation, right? We started by thinking about God who created everything. He started it all. He spoke the universe and our world into existence at creation. He is the author. He is the one who began everything. And then we, we saw how corruption set in when, when those very first humans that God created, they had this beautiful fellowship with him. They had this beautiful relationship with God in, in this perfect place. And yet they rebelled against God's good decrees. And they said, we want our way instead of your way. And with that, sin entered into the world, and, we, and now all of humanity has been corrupted by that sin, that stain. And in response to that, because of how, how the corruption continued, God caused a catastrophe to happen in order to really start over, to wipe the slate clean. So we saw that with the global flood. And then, even after... Um, Beginning anew with a new family, sin was still in the world. And so the the humans at that time began to want to set themselves up. And so they created that Tower of Babel. And they said, we will be the best. We will build something to get all the way to God. And so God said, I'm going to confuse your languages so that you will obey what I intended for you to do. And that is to go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. Because they wanted to gather in one place rather than being spread out. And so we talked before that nearly the, the entirety of the Old Testament is, is in that stage of confusion. 
God entered, entered into various covenants with people, with Abraham, with Moses, with, with the people of Israel, and, and, and saw them through that. But really, the story of the Old Testament is a story that lives in that time of confusion. But throughout that, God was constantly saying, there will come someone. There will be an anointed one. There will be a Messiah. And we, we believe that that Messiah is Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, the Son of God. And so in the Gospels, we got a chance to see who Jesus is, how he lived, that, that one unique, fully God, fully human being who lived the perfect life and then died a death in substitutionary in a substitutionary manner for us on the cross and yet we we read in the gospels the cross wasn't the end for jesus he died because of the cross was buried came back to life three days later and and now is ascended and and with his ascension he really allowed he really charged his people his followers his disciples to begin the church and to, to be the church, to be his witnesses, his ambassadors in all the world. He gave us a very clear mandate, as we shared in Kids Connection, to go into all the, all the world and make disciples. We learned in the book of Acts that you know, they would, we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see that era of the church. But all of that is leading to one final See in all of this. And really the book of Revelation gives us a glimpse of what that is. And that is consummation. Consummation when God will be fully united with his people. When he will cause his kingdom to be fully realized. And so the book of Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It is the one that kind of gives us this apocalyptic picture and this story of, of what has happened and what will happen. And it's a, a beautiful and strange, strange book. But uh, today I hope that we can, we can, I hope to be able to do justice as we consider in about 30 minutes the 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. It's, it, we're going we're gonna to take a very high level view, but let's, let me just give us a little bit of background. It, the Apostle John was the guy whose name shows up right near the beginning. And he clearly identifies himself as the author of the book. He received this message from an angel, from a messenger of God. This is the same John who was one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And most likely it was written around 95 AD, very late in John's life during the reign of Emperor Domitian. And, and you know, when we think about who did he write to, John specifically wrote to seven churches in Asia. If you remember, we, we learned about this a few weeks ago, that John was kind of a regional overseer of a bunch of different churches. He sort of shepherded them and watched out for them and cared for them. And so we see that John is given this vision. He's given this revelation specifically to share with the churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so this message, this book, was to be sent to each of those churches, and it was intended to be read aloud. So they would take it from one place to the next. 
Now, if we think about the organization of the book, if you've had a chance to read it, 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 it's easy to think, oh my goodness, this is such a confusing book. There's these these judgments and there's these other judgments and there's these dragons and people with multiple heads and multiple creatures with multiple heads and multiple eyes and multiple... What in the world is going on? But if we were to really look at what is the overall structure of the book of Revelation, we could divide it into three sections. Chapter 1 really talks about what was, what happened in the past. Chapters 2 and 3, as, as, as he gets specific to the churches, really talks about what is. And chapters 4 through 22 really help us understand what is to come. What was, what is, and what is to come. And John records this declaration from God in, in Revelation 1.8, which kind of becomes a bit of an outline for the book. A little bit out of order, but a, a bit of an outline. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. You see, God being the source of all things, the beginning and the end, is the source of this message. And a bit later on, John gets a glimpse into the heavenly throne room, and he hears the praise that is repeated in Revelation 4, 8, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, there are a ton of interesting elements to this book. And let me just kind of point out a few things that jumped out at me as I was studying this and reading it and and looking at different commentaries on this book. See, there are creatures with numerous horns and eyes. There are creatures with the head of one type of a creature and a body of another type of a creature. There's a throne room. There are dragons and there are other beasts. J.R.R. Tolkien would have, would, I, I, as I was listening to it, because a lot of times I'll listen to the to Scripture, as I was listening to it, I was imagining the Lord of the Rings and just some of this, the fantastic imagery of, of those movies and those books. Thinking, wow, J.R.R. Tolkien would have loved to, to put this into a, a book. I mean, well, it is in a book, but he probably would have loved to make it a, a ten-part, uh, well, it's not a trilogy, decology, I guess. But I think one of the interesting things is that many of the images we see really find their root in the Old Testament. Daniel and Ezekiel painted pictures and, he, and they talked about creatures that had multiple eyes and creatures with different heads and dragons and, and all these different beasts. And so as, as people in the first century were reading and hearing this book read, keep in mind, they're hearing it. They did, most people did not have an opportunity to study this. So they're going purely by the imagery that they get to hear. It would have been familiar to them for those who had heard Ezekiel. For those who had heard Daniel. And it almost seems like what John is writing about becomes a a glimpse at the fulfillment of what Ezekiel and Daniel had told him centuries earlier. And it's easy to get caught up into all of the imagery. To try to decipher it. Try to think, what does this creature mean? What What are all those things? How does that pan out? And, and as I got to thinking about it, and, and, you know, there are folks who have a lot of guesses as to what exactly it means. But 
there is one thing that comes through crystal clear, and that is the overarching story of Revelation, which is really what, what I'm hoping we'll get a chance to focus on today. So we're going to look, we're going to take some broad brushstrokes. So if, unfortunately, if you were hoping to find out what exactly this dragon meant and what that mountain meant and what that woman or that man or that who these prophets were, we're not going to get into all those nitty-gritty details. Maybe someday we'll have a class or or do a whole 22-sermon series on Revelation or something. But one of the things that is kind of interesting, and keep in mind, this is an auditory culture, and so John is, is seeing this vision of heaven, and he's hearing things, and he's been commanded, you hear this and write down what you see. And so right at the beginning, we see this disparity between what he hears and what he sees. One of the first things we see is that uh, John hears a voice, but then he gets to see a lampstand. Look at what it says in Revelation 1, 10 through 16. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia. Not our Philadelphia, but a different Philadelphia. And to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like, the son, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held, the seven, held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was shining like the sun in full strength. So he hears a voice. He turns and sees these lampstands, but he also sees this one like the Son of Man. In another instance, he hears about a lion. And instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. You see, he has this glimpse into the heavenly throne room. And John hears one description of someone who can open the scrolls. In fact, Brian read that earlier. He, he hears about this one. Look, look at what it says again in, in Revelation uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we have this image. He hears, hey, the lion is here. And then here's what he sees. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
John was expecting something strong, this lion, and yet he sees this lamb, not just any lamb, but a lamb that had been killed. Which seems to indicate that this battle, this war that is being waged is not going to be waged on our terms, on terms that we would expect. There's another disparity that John sees when he hears about the sealed, S-E-A-L-E-D, sealed, and then gets to see the assembly. You see, in the midst midst of some of the judgments that were happening, there's a a sort of pause as as an angel says, uh, we need to protect these people. Look at what it says in Revelation 7, 2 to 4. It says, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. With the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. You see, he saw the angel and he heard the declaration 144,000 almost like a, a military a military census let's make sure we have everything we need to go into battle but yet after listing the 12,000 from each tribe John says John notices in Revelation 7 9 to 10 he says after this I looked and behold, a great, num- a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So it's not simply the 144,000 from the 12 tribes. Now it's people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I point out these differences because I think it seems like what John hears is what he expects. He hears one thing and, and, and expects that it's going to be, you know, so he hears a powerful voice. He hears about a great warrior, a great lion. He hears about a powerful army. But what he sees is the reality that God's ways are not our ways. He fights and wins, and he does so in ways that we don't fully understand. The churches or the lampstands at the beginning have significance for the kingdom as witnesses of what is going on, what God is doing, and what he will do. The lion who conquers is, as John wrote in in his gospel, John once went on, he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The military strength of the kingdom is not limited to those from one people group, but rather those who have been redeemed from everywhere. His kingdom is bigger and more expansive than John expected. And as we dive into a bit more of the message of Revelation, I want us to consider the message really by asking three questions. Who is on the throne? What is he going to do? And what will we do about it? So let's think about that first question. And if you want to take some notes, this is where I think some of the fill in the blank things in your outline uh, are there. 
So first of all, who is on the throne? You see, John is given visions. He gets to see a variety of different things. He, he gets to see a lamb. He gets to see a storm. He gets to see a city. And he gets to see this glorious throne room. And what we learn in the book of Revelation is that God is on the throne with the lamb or with Jesus by his side. The storm that John sees is really the unleashing of God's wrath. And the city is a vision of a new creation. Something that God is doing new to change, to bring that consummation that we talked about, to to fulfill his mission in the world. But one of the interesting things, and I think this this is helpful for us to go back to the first century, because one of the things the emperor Domitian had done is he told people, when you come into my presence, you will acknowledge me by stating that you, Domitian, are worthy of to be praised. You alone are worthy. And so when John, as he's writing this to these seven seven churches in the first century, when he tells them that, no, you, God, are worthy, you are the only one who is truly worthy, they hear that as almost as sort of a rallying cry. When John sees the picture of a heavenly throne and hears the praise around the throne directed toward God, It becomes a source of encouragement for the church. And then in chapters 2 and 3, John is instructed to write specifically to the seven churches. For some of them, he provides a commendation and encouragement for work that they're doing. And for others, he provides a correction, scolding them for, for compromise. And I believe that these churches were real churches that existed back in the first and second centuries. But I also think that some of those attributes that they dealt with are things that we have to deal with. So he wrote to the church at Ephesus and commended them for their doctrinal stance. They had really good doctrine. They were right on the money when it came to doctrine. But God told John to tell them that they had lost their first love. They failed to love God and failed to love others the way that they should. In Smyrna, they endured persecution and, and they were spiritually rich and, and, and yet they were, in, and they were encouraged to be faithful to the end. In Pergamum, They did not deny their faith and remain loyal to Christ. And yet in the midst of all that, they endured false teaching. They allowed certain things to come in. So John has a correction for them. In Thyatira, they were growing in love, but these people lacked discernment and tolerated heresy. And I think in many ways we could see this in our culture as we allow various social concerns to dictate our theology. It's easy to become a church at Thyatira here in North America. In Sardis, some people remained pure and loyal, but their works were dead. It was as though they were just going through the motions. In Philadelphia, they were patiently enduring persecution, and they remained loyal. And finally, in Laodicea, he has a very strong rebuke for them because they were essentially spiritually blind and bankrupt. And he calls them lukewarm. He says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. And I think the challenge for us to think about as we reflect at different times, we're not going to do it right now, but for us to think about how are we like those churches? 
Where are we doctrinally sound but loveless? Where are we allowing false teaching or allowing heresy to find its root? Where are we allowing certain things? Are we on fire for the Lord? Are we just kind of going through the motions? And so I guess what each of these churches had to recognize, and I think what we have to ask ourselves is, who is on the throne of the church? John sees God on the throne in this heavenly throne room, but is he in charge of the churches? There are pressures that we will face, pressures that we are called to endure. Will we remain true and faithful, or will we patiently wait? And will we patiently wait until that final consummation, or will we buckle? Will we give in? I give up. We fail to see what God is doing in the grand scheme of things. So as we consider the book of Revelation, not only do we get to ask the question, who is on the throne, but but we get to ask, what is he, God, going to do? And when John sees this throne room, he sees one like the Son of Man sitting on the throne and, and in his right hand a scroll that has seven seals. And this is more, this is not just those, you know, if you get those fancy little papyrus note cards, you guys ever get those ones, a little hummingbird on them? And, and you can, you, they're, they're, I, I love those when I write cards sometimes, but you get that little sticky seal to go on the back. Well, these seven seals are not like those self-stick seals. These are like wax seals that have been imprinted with, with, um, with the image or the representation of, of God on them. And since the Lamb is the one who is truly worthy to open the scroll and unlock the seals, he gets to do so. And then what, what John sees is as each scroll, each seal is opened, we get to see different judgments and different things happening in the world. And these judgments are released in a series of seven judgments, or really roughly 21. And the way it seems to, to play out in Revelation is you have six of them, you have a bit of a pause, then you have the seventh, which really encapsulates the next seven judgments. So you have six, and then another pause, the last one, which encapsulates the final group. So we see these very briefly, the seven seals in Revelation 6 through eight. During these judgments, there are great plagues that are poured out on the earth, represented by four horsemen who unleash war and conquest and famine and death on great portions of the earth. And as I said, there are six initial seals that are open and they have escalating furies. It's like the intensity is growing with each successive seal and with each successive judgment. And then after a break, the seventh seal encapsulates the next series of furies, which are announced by seven trumpets in Revelation 8 through 11. And there are elements of these that would remind people of the plagues that happened back in Egypt. You have things like darkness and locusts and blood and poisoned water and hail. And as with the first set, there are six initial trumpets, a brief break, and then a final trumpet, which unleashes the, the last big judgments, and that is seven bowls in Revelation 15 and 16. And again, these seem to represent, be reminders of what happened in Exodus. Now, some people say these, these seven or 21 uh, judgments are really the same judgments just reiterated and spoken of differently. And whether they're the same ones talked about sort of in a circular manner or whether they're all linear, I don't really know. It's, it's difficult to, to see that. 
But whatever the nature of these furies or plagues, the result is clear and that there will be a great battle. And God is doing something. And ultimately, Jesus will defeat the principalities and powers of this world and the martyrs, those who have lost their lives on account of, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, the martyrs will be vindicated. So as these things are released, what we see is that the lamb is judging his adversaries. And I think when we try to, try to decode this book too much, we sometimes fail to see all that God might be doing. We try to get into the nitty gritty. We fail to see the storyline, the symbols that make us look back to the Old Testament to help us have confidence that this will happen in the future. And then ultimately there will be a final point of judgment when Satan, all of those who follow him, will be eternally punished. Look at what it says in Revelation 20 verses 11 to 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in them. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So not only do we find that he is judging his adversaries and the principalities and powers of this world, but we see, we find that in these judgments, these judgments ultimately reveal justice for Jesus' people, justice for those martyrs, vindication especially on those who have lost their lives. Revelation 19, 1-3 says, After this I heard what seemed like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And ultimately, this justice will bring relief from the persecution that Jesus' people will face. The one who is ultimately in charge is not those who have hurt the church or his or the followers of Christ. So we've considered who is on the throne. God is. What is he going to do? He's going to judge. He will bring justice. He will also bring some redemption. But it really gets to the last question. Revelation doesn't necessarily ask this question directly. But I think the overall story begs this question for us. And that is, what will we do about it? With all the imagery and symbolism, it's easy to look at it and say, well, God's got this. I don't understand all those things that God is going to do. I don't understand why this animal has 10 horns or why this one has seven eyes. Why I, I can picture it. I can't comprehend it, but I can picture it. And it's easy to say, okay, well, since God is doing all that and I can't understand that, I'm just going to twiddle my thumbs and not make any changes in my life. 
And I believe that part of what the book of Revelation does is that forces people to ask, what will we do about what is going to happen? What will we do about that? And practically speaking, I think we have to look at our response from two different perspectives. For Christians, firstly, for Christians, will we remain faithful? Remember, the early Christians who first received this letter were living in a culture where it was illegal for them to follow Christ. It was illegal for them to be believers in Jesus Christ. For them to have public worship was outlawed. And so there was a great deal of persecution. And as our, con- our culture continues to move away from God, will we hold fast and will we remain faithful in the midst of that? In Revelation 14, 12, and this is, this is actually stated twice, once in 14, I believe the other one is in chapter uh, 13. But John writes, here is a call for the endurance of the saints to those who keep the commandments of God and, and their faith in Jesus. He's making a direct call to believers to say, stick with it, endure, press on. But also, I think as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, will we resist worldly pressures to deny Christ? Part of the purpose of those early letters is for us to recognize that we are or can be each of those early churches. We can move from our first love. We can compromise our convictions. We can go through the motions. We can also resist the temptations that are around us. But ultimately, will we as Christians wait? Revelation and other parts of Scripture give us hope that there will be a day when Christ will return. He is coming back, a day when God will ultimately realize his reign in this world. And I love in that song, and I love what it says here in in Revelation, that God will dwell with us. Oh, what a joy that will be. And I think that's part of, there's, a, there's an image that John sees in the very, near the end of the book, where he sees this city coming down. And this city is like this perfect cube. It's about 1,300 miles wide and long and, 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 and tall. And it's just, it's a weird, for us, it's a weird image to think, how, what is a cube? And yet one of the things that Mark Dever in his commentary on this mentioned or in his sermon on this, he said early Jews would have recognized those dimensions as being the blown up dimensions of the Holy of Holies, a perfect cube. Now, keep in mind, who was allowed in the Holy of Holies? Only the priest. And what has Jesus done by dying on the cross and giving us access to God is that he has made us, all of us, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are marked by the blood of Jesus Christ, a kingdom of priests, holy to our God. And so that city coming down is an image of us having direct access and direct fellowship with the God of the universe, the God who created all things. And it says there is no temple in there because God is the temple. There's no source of light because God is the light. He is all that we will need in that place. And I think part of the reason it's so big is because we're going to need a lot of space for all the people who are going to be there. So as believers, 
Will we remain faithful? Will we resist worldly pressures? And will we wait patiently? But I think the message of Revelation not only forces Christians to ask, what will we do about the message here? But it forces those who don't yet believe for non-Christians to really ask the question, what will I do with what the message of Revelation says? I believe part of the call of Revelation is for those who are far from God. And I believe that call is to come. Revelation 3, verse 20. It's not going to be on the slides, but it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, those words were actually written to the church at Laodicea in in chapter 3. But I believe that, you know, there's that parallel to us that Jesus Christ is calling out to you and to me. It was, it was a call that he made to me when I was about five years old. And I responded and said, okay, yes, come in. Come dine with me. I want to be in fellowship with you. It's, in addition to an invitation, I think there's a warning in, the, in these pages of Revelation that these things will happen. There will be a time. We don't know exactly when. God hasn't told us when it will take place. But there will be a time when God's going to say, I'm done. I've had enough with the way things are. My judgment is coming and it will be swift. In fact, there's a few different times when, when God says that he, when, when Revelation, John writes in Revelation that God judges this city and the judgment happens in a single day. Just one day. We don't need, he doesn't need massive wars, but in a single day, he causes these rebellious cities to fall. So ultimately, it will come down to those who are, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 12, again, it's 11 to 14. Then I saw a great white throne, and him was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book's the book of life. Those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life are those who have an eternity sealed with God. There will come a day when you and I will have to give an account for what we've done. And I got to tell you, our names can only be written in that book of life if we've responded by faith to what Christ has done for us. Have you done that or do you just go through the motions of church do you think that because your parents were Christians or because you attend church or because it's the only way your name is written in the Lamb's book of life is if you've responded I believe Jesus died for me that is the essence of the gospel in fact, I want to do something real quickly. Take in on, on your note, on your bulletin. If you have a pen close by, this would be great. But I want you to write gospel, G-O-S-P-L, vertically on your thing. So you can, we're going to make it an acronym, okay? G-O-S-P-L. And this, uh, I'm stealing this from a guy named Propaganda, who's a, who's a spoken word, Christian spoken word artist. But essentially, he says this. He, he says, gospel means God who created everything just the way he wanted to, 
God, the G is God, O is our, all of us, everyone in creation, we all have sinned, which is the next letter. S is for sin. You see, we read in other parts of Scripture that sin requires death, and God offered His perfect Son as the perfect substitute for our sin, the one who could truly pay for our lives. So God, our sin, P is paying his life for ours, that perfect replacement. E is everyone. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, the whole world. Jesus' life and death, his sacrifice is sufficient for the whole world. So God, our sin, paying everyone life. Paying everyone life. Purposeful life and eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, says that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus, came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So, friend, if you're far from God, if you don't know where you will be, if you don't know whether your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, let me encourage you, get it taken care of today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. God has proven himself faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. And I want to ask you, will you allow your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life? Receive Jesus Christ and his salvation. Respond today. Revelation twenty-two twelve to 13 says, Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming Soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He may come today. He may not come for another millennia. Will you respond today? If you don't know what that means, let's talk after church or let's get some coffee or something this week and, and I'd love to open scripture and help you understand how your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the book of Revelation. Lord, it is a beautiful and weird book. But God, the message is clear. The call to Christians is for us to be faithful in every circumstance to stand up against temptation to withstand the pressures that the world brings on us to remain faithful to you but the message of revelation is also clear that one day you will come and judge that you will bring your kingdom into full reality Oh, God, we're looking forward so much to that day when we get to dwell with you. 
But God, I do pray for those who are far from you. Lord, give them a desire to respond to your loving call. Help them, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.